Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Trust you had a good holiday with your family. Remembering, like Glenn said, how we have every reason to be thankful, right? In every circumstance, no matter what's going on, we can be thankful or uh, commanded to be thankful, I guess, is, is what the Bible says too. So I know, uh, I know the holidays sometimes can be a mixed bag of emotions because of loved ones who are present, who are present, or loved ones who are not present, right? And um, more, than, more than just our circumstances, more than how we feel about our circumstances, we can give thanks in every situation because of who our God is. And so I'm thankful for that. And our passage is going to speak to, to this reality even a little bit. Um, what's bigger than our circumstances? Who is our God and um, what is he about? So please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Use whatever copy of, of the Bible that's going to help you and help others around you. Learn from it. Um, I'd encourage you to use a hard copy. I hear lots of pages turning, so that, that pleases my ears. There's one in the seat in front of you, probably somewhere. If you, if you need one, we'll be on page 479 in that Bible. <clears throat> and I sound sick a little bit. I feel, I feel good. There's some sort of rhinovirus going around. Don't tell anyone, though. It's just a rhinovirus. <laughs> So I have the God-ordained privilege, I believe, the God-ordained privilege of uh, delivering this passage to you as an introduction to the Advent season, right? Christmas time. Right? We're, we're past Thanksgiving. You can play Christmas music. You can put the lights up. And so in the coming weeks, your pastors are going to dive into verse 6 of, of Isaiah 9, and we're going to unpack the four names that uh, are listed there, and, and the significance of them, um, what do they have to do with a light dawning? What do they have to do with a light coming? So uh, I have the privilege of unpacking the whole, the whole passage. We often look at verse 6 and verse 7 as Christmas passages, right? We, we consider them during the Christmas time. We put them on our, our cards, um, rightfully so, but it, they're in the context of a passage. And so I've been excited about studying this passage, and I, I want to unpack it for us. Um, what is Isaiah really trying to say when he, he talks about this child? What is he really trying to say when he talks about uh, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace? So the book of Isaiah is a beautiful one, and I'm, I'm seeing the beauty more and more as I uh, study seminary and study Hebrew and, and can unpack things a little bit more than I could before. And Isaiah uh, sp speaks to this tension for the people of Israel if, if they had just done what they were supposed to do, right? If, if the people, if God's people had just done what they were supposed to do, everything would have been okay. But they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. And so Isaiah speaks to this this concept of judgment. We're going we're gonna to go back and look at how the book of Isaiah is introduced. And it's, it's about judgment because they've messed up. But at the same time, Isaiah 
speaks of salvation maybe more strongly than any other book in the Old Testament. It's the, the gospel of the Old Testament. And so this, this idea of salvation and judgment are, are put together in such a way um, that they, they help make sense of each other. And specifically, as we, as we jump into kind of the middle of the book, we're going to see in this passage that God is in the business of transforming gloom to glory. He's in the, he's in the, he's in the business of transforming gloom to glory. So let's read. We're going we're gonna to be in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For For unto us, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful that we have your word and we can come to it today. See how you transform gloom to glory and we're going to see it in the lives of your people, Judah and Israel. And, and because of Jesus, we know it's true for us as well. And so would you help us see this text clearly? Um, sometimes sometimes we, we need to work harder to understand what your word says. And um, I pray that you would help us do that this morning. Help us not settle for um, just what we think we know. But help, help your, your word penetrate our hearts through your spirit so that we can see what is true we can worship you and you're all about being more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So our, our passage begins. We, we've got a ways to go before we get to verse 6. So, so come along with me, okay? Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So, what is, what is this about? What is this gloom that Isaiah speaks of in the former time, uh, in, in days gone by? What is, what is Isaiah talking about, right? Who is this her that he's talking about? Maybe you're like, what is Zebulun and what is, what is Naphtali, all right? Well, let's, let's understand, right? This is, this is setting the context for what Isaiah is talking about. So, let's, let's understand what he's saying. And we're going to go back 
um, we're going to go back to answer some of these questions, back into history a little bit, actually. Um, I'm going to first turn to, to 2 Kings chapter 15. We see some, some language around the nation of Israel, actually, right? There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So uh, a little geography lesson, I don't have a map, but you can, you can picture the nation of Israel, right? And at the bottom is the Dead Sea, um, where, you can, where you can float because it's so salty, and go up the Jordan River, and then there's the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is right in the middle. And up at the top, next to the Sea of, of Galilee, when Israel... Uh, entered into the land, the, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes that would settle the land, each had their allotted uh, territory that they, they would occupy. And so Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those tribes, and they had land at the top of the nation, right? They, they were next to the Sea of Galilee. Naphtali was a little bit higher than Zebulun. So this is the nation of, of Israel, because at this point, Israel and Judah have split. And so, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, says, In the day, days of Pekah, the king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, um, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel-Beth-Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. So, Assyria is up in Mesopotamia, and they come down and they capture the land of Naphtali and, the, and these other places that uh, the, the author of Second Kings mention, mentions. It's, it's the time of Pekah, who's the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And so Assyria comes and captures some of these places. They, they overtake them. They take the people away. So this is, this is the gloom that Isaiah is talking about, right? Imagine, right, if you were the land of Israel, you settle God's promised land, and then a, a nation comes and conquers you and takes you away. Imagine if that happened here, right? If, if an army invaded the United States, this would never happen, right? Of course, just imagine, that they come and they, all right, they invade the United States. They, uh, they, they start up in Maine somehow. They, they figure there's not a lot going on up there. So they, they land in Maine, and then they, they come to Massachusetts, right? And, and then they come to New York, and, man, they're right, they're right next to us. They're going to come, and they're going to conquer. I'm not trying to say a lot here, but just imagine Imagine somebody in coming, somebody coming and, and capturing our land and taking us away. We get shipped off to another country. How would, you, how would you feel? What would go through your mind about your family, your jobs, your home? This is what was happening to Israel. It's, it's, it's happening in our world today. We don't have to imagine it, right? We think about Israel. We could think about Ukraine. We could think about other countries where this is happening. This is... This is gloom, right? This is, not, this is not good. This is anguish, like Isaiah says. This is the situation in God's promised land. Um, 
And this is Israel. This is, this is where Isaiah starts. But I want you to turn back to Isaiah and turn to chapter 7. Turn back just a page from where we were. Because Isaiah is not talking to Israel. He's not talking to the northern kingdom. Isaiah is talking to Judah. So let's look at, uh, look at chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. So Ahaz is the king of Judah. Rezin, the king of Syria. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. So we recognize that name, Pekah, and, and so Israel has joined forces with Syria, not Assyria, joined forces with Syria, and they're coming against Judah. So the, the gloom, the darkness gets deeper. Why, uh, why was Judah, why was, why was Israel, why were they in contempt? That's what Isaiah says, right? Why were they in contempt? Why were they in trouble? You can look down to chapter 8, verse 5. <clears throat> Isaiah tells us, he's, he says, The Lord spoke to me again. Because this pe- people has refused the waters of Shiloh, because they've refused to go where I want them to go, where I told them to go, and they rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. It will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land. O Emmanuel. So Judah and Israel are neck deep in some trouble, right? They're, they're in some big trouble. I want to go back even further into the book of Isaiah. Go back to chapter 1, like I said. We're trying to understand, why is there gloom? Why, why was there gloom? Why was there darkness? In the land of Judah. Look at Isaiah chapter, chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So, Judah is in a, is in a predicament. They're neck deep in gloom, and actually it seems like they don't even know it. It seems like they don't even know what's going on. Now, certainly, they see the Assyrians um, staring them down, conquering their, their northern neighbor. They, they see what's coming. They see Israel and Syria mounting an attack against them. But what they don't see, as Isaiah says in chapter 1, what they don't see is that they don't know their God. Right? The, the contempt that, that Judah is in is because they don't know their God. An ox knows its owner, 
A donkey knows its master's crib, but the, the people of Israel, God says, they don't know me. They've, they've forgotten me. And so they don't, they don't see that they're in darkness. They, they don't see because they're in darkness. So, there's gloom. But, but what, did I, what did I say? God transforms gloom to glory. So let's move on to, to verse 2 of chapter 9. <clears throat> Maybe I should have you guys do a Bible, a sword drill, with all these places I'm going to be taking you, right? So, there's gloom, there's anguish. Former time, there's contempt. But, he says in verse 1, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. The same land, the, the land of Naphtali, Naphtali and Zebulun, he's made glorious the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. So Isaiah turns quickly to, to this, uh, this hymn of praise, is, is what this really is, this hymn of praise. Isaiah turns quickly to introduce the theme, and the theme is, is light. The theme is glory. The, the people who dwell in darkness, the people who dwell in gloom, they're not going to stay there because they've seen a great light. On them, light has shown. On them, light has dawned. He says it twice to make sure that we hear it, right? He says, people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So what is this, this going to look like? Verse 3, he says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So what does he mean that he multiplied the nation. What, is it, what does he mean that the, this, this talk of harvest? It, it makes me think back to, to Genesis, and you, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Genesis chapter 12, uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham, with Abram, and he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I think this is some of what Isaiah has in mind that um, this salvation, this light, this glory that's going to come to Judah will, will be about the nation because God promised Israel, promised Judah, things about the nation. He promised to Abraham to bless them. He promised to make them a great nation. And so the Lord is going to multiply the nation of Judah. They're in gloom, they're in anguish because they've disobeyed, but he will follow through on his promise to make them a great nation. What's the, what's the joy that they're going to have going to look like? It's, it's going to be as with joy at the harvest. If you're, if you're a farmer, you might, you might feel what he's describing about more than 
some of us do who aren't farmers, right? The, the joy that comes from bringing in the crop. Or, or maybe, um, maybe yesterday you were hunting in the woods and you had a, a nice harvest uh, with, some, with some nice horns. My father-in-law got a nice one yesterday and he's got a story too. So you can ask him about that afterwards, right? Think, think about, I, I'm picturing him harvesting the deer, right? He, he, he didn't actually know how big it was until he walked up on it. And so the joy that you have is saying, whoa, what is, what is this, right? Or you're bringing in a crop from the garden, or, or maybe, maybe you can think about this in a relational way. The, the, the effort, the labor that you've put into loving someone bears its fruit. You reap the harvest and you have joy. You're glad when we can enjoy what God has given us. This is, this is what the, the glory, the, the, the light will look like. He goes on, he describes it even more in verse 4. He says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Right, his, his burden, his shoulder, that's, that's talking about the nation. It's talking about the, the burden that was on the nation. You've broken their burden. You've taken the, the oppressive staff that was, was, was weighing them down off of them. The, the rod of your oppressor is, is broken. Right? It's, it's destroyed. Burdens are broken. It says you have broken it as on the day of, of Midian. Right? Do you guys know what Midian you know what he's referring to when he says Midian? Well, he's, he's talking about uh, the book of Judges, actually, right? The, the story of Gideon, who defeated the Midianites. Uh, I think every time I'm, I'm up here preaching, I say, go talk to Scott about something. Well, go talk to Scott about this story of Gideon, right? He's, he's writing a paper on it for class. And so we're going to gloss over it. In, in Judges chapter 6, we see the story of of Gideon, and we have in mind what Isaiah is saying. He's, he's breaking the burden. He's destroying what was weighing them, the people down. In, in Judges 6, 1, he says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because, and because of the people of, of Midian, the people of Israel, made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, in the caves, uh, and the strongholds. And he, he goes on to describe how the Midianites oppressed Israel. Right? They, they drove them from their homes. They had to dwell in caves. They, they would plant crops. And as soon as the crops sprouted up, the Midianites would come in and they'd take all the crops. So, so Israel was starving. They're their, their animals were starving. We know the story of Gideon. We know that uh, God saves the people of Israel through Gideon in a, in a way that only he could have done. Right? He, he pairs down his men and he even says, I'm doing this so that you know it will be me that has done this. So the, the nation will, will have their burdens broken just like the day of Midian. Why, why would he use this story? Right? We could think of lots of other stories 
in the Old Testament where God saved his people. We could think about uh, the, the, the exodus from Egypt is, is a big one, right? We, we could think about other stories. Why would, he, why would he use the story of Gideon and the Midianites? I think, I think Isaiah and God might have chosen this story because of its geography, right? Where, where did this battle take place? So it took place next to the Sea of Galilee, near the land of, of Zebulun, or what would be the land of Zebulun, right? So Isaiah is making these connections for us that, that just like God saved Israel from the Midianites, he's going, he's going to bring light. He's going to bring glory. He's going to break the burden. And he describes one more way. Verse 5, he says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. I think he's talking about the idea of, of weapons, the, the things of war being redeemed. I, I look forward to the New Testament for, for this explanation or illustration. In Romans, Paul says, for we are more than conquerors through Christ. Right? We're, we're more than just people who will uh, over overthrow, who will conquer, right? The, the idea is that God will even use the process. God will even use the weapons. He'll use the garments. He'll use the, the shoes as, as fuel for the fire. They're going to become useful. They will be redeemed. The kind of glory that this deliverer that, that Isaiah is talking about will bring will not just destroy the enemy, it's going to transform what they have into something that's useful. It's gloom to glory. God is determined to save his people. And we're talking about Judah and Israel. God is determined to save his people. So how, how, is, he going to, how is he going to do it, right? We've got Syria. We've got Syria. We have Pekah and Israel, all these nations waging war against Judah. How is, how is God going to save his people? Verse 6, right? For to us a child is born. Oh, wait a second. A child? We, we, know the, we know the passage, right? We know this verse. But, but think about it so far as the passage has laid it out, right? He's talking about military conquest. He's talking about government. He's talking about a nation. So, so why would Isaiah, why would God talk about a child? Why would he say that this is the way? It seems a little strange. Right? And I, Isaiah, he does have in mind saving the nation, right? It's not just a metaphor. God wants his people to live in the the promised land, the, the land that he's given them. We, we, we read God's covenant with Abraham. He's going to give him a land. He's going to bless him. He's going to bless the nations through him. I'd like you to turn back to Psalm chapter 2.
the author of the psalm says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So that, that kind of sounds like the situation that Isaiah is describing, right? The nations raging, the peoples plotting, the earth, the kings of the earth setting themselves up together against the Lord. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with your rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So, so Isaiah and Psalm 2 have some, some similar themes, right? A son is begotten, the nation's raging. We, we start to see that maybe this does make sense. Isaiah is talking about the nation, but he's talking about more than that. And I want to pause a little bit to, to caution us from, uh, from being deceived by the, t- the two ditches uh, on either side of this, this sort of situation. When we think about the nation, we think about what Isaiah is talking about, right? Before we pass over this, we need, to, we need to recognize that God does care about politics. Don't be deceived to think that ducking the problems of our world or turning an eye to injustice or, or turning away, being passive against corruption, pleases God. Paul in the New Testament um, tells us that every, everyone in authority is, is put there by God. So we, we can't gloss over the fact that God is doing something with his nation. He's doing something connected to its government. God does care about politics. Micah 6.8 says that the Lord requires of us to, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk with our God. And the, the other ditch kind of helps us move in the direction we need to go. If if we're careful about that side, we, we need to be careful that we don't think that God only cares about politics. Right? God cares about more than politics. So don't read a passage like this or another one and think that the only way God can save us is through a certain political party or a certain agenda or even a certain individual. Right? If we could just get this, if we could get just get this person into office, if the news would just talk about this more, if we could just, if we could just, well, if, if Israel had just done the right thing, this child uh, might have not been needed. Right? He, he's going to rule, we're going to see, he's going to rule on David's throne. If, if David had just done the right thing, maybe, maybe this would have been okay. Let's go, let's go back even further. If Adam had just done the right thing, we wouldn't have this problem, right? We wouldn't have the mess that Judah finds itself in. There's a reason that this matters because the, the political darkness 
the political oppression and corruption, and specifically I'm saying that that of Judah and Israel, they're manifestations of a deeper spiritual darkness and oppression and corruption. The New Testament insists that the chief problem that humans have is not connected to politics. It's, it's a spiritual problem that we have. So God's answer to the world's cruelty, God's answer to arrogance of the nations is not more cruelty and arrogance. It's not, it's not a greater oppression through a ruler, right? God's answer is the innocence and vulnerability of a child. This child will swallow up the darkness and oppression and corruption of the world and give back light and freedom and justice. So that, that is strength. So maybe we, maybe we, ought, we ought to revisit the gloom briefly, right? You see, Judah and Israel have this problem with Assyria. We've, we've talked about that. They have a big problem with Assyria. But they have an even bigger problem with their relationship with the Lord, right? What, what's at the heart of what they're experiencing with Assyria is what's in their hearts. The Lord's plan to save them through a child still doesn't make a lot of sense, right? What, what does a child have to do with saving people? What, is, what does the child have to do with their relationship with the Lord? We're going to go way back one more time. Genesis chapter 3. God has created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. And as I hinted at, they, they don't do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> they do what they're not supposed to do, actually. They eat of the tree God commanded them not to eat. And so, starting in verse 14, the Lord brings judgment on the serpent and on Adam and on Eve. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his head. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, this, uh, this offspring, this seed, points us to, to a child, right? This is God talking to the serpent. And his judgment to the serpent is that y- you, will, you will bruise this offspring's heel. But this, this offspring is going gonna, is gonna to deliver a, a crushing blow to your head. So if I'm, a, if I'm an Israelite, I'm a Jew reading this, and I, I, know Isaiah, I know Genesis 3, and I read Isaiah chapter 9. 
I shouldn't be surprised that it's a child. I shouldn't at all because God from the very beginning said an offspring, a seed, will be the one to save you. They should have been looking for a child. So maybe, we, maybe now we can revisit this, this glory too. It's, it's about Judah. God was determined to save Judah, but not just from Assyria. God was so determined to save his people that he would send a child to save his people from their sins. Their sin was the deep darkness that they were experiencing. Their, their sin was at the heart of what they were anguished about. Their sin was the heart of their contempt. So, so let's go on to verses 6 and 7. See how, how Isaiah describes this child. This child isn't like other children that I, I know or have heard of. He says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The, the zeal of the Lord will do this. So this child isn't like other children, right? Look, look at his names. He shall be called, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're, we're going to unpack each of these, but these aren't, these aren't names for just any old child, right? These are, these are names for God, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Who would, who would be called these names? What child would be called these names? Look at the kind of rule that he's going to have. The government will be on his shoulder. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. What kind of king has that sort of rule? Right? It's a special sort of king. Right? There, there's no end to his rule. And, and on David's throne... He's going to establish it and uphold it with perfect righteousness and, and perfect justice. This is a, a special child, right? And how long is his rule going to last? From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, what, what we know now is that there is no one that this, no one else this child could be except the Messiah, right? The Son of God. And, and, and we know this, we anticipate this. You've probably been sitting in your seat uh, holding back your hand. It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. It's who it is. How do we, how do we know it's Jesus? Have you ever asked that question about this passage? How do we know that it's Jesus? Well, turn, turn ahead now to Matthew chapter 4. See, Matthew and the, the time of Jesus is, is Isaiah looking forward 700 years. 
It's Isaiah's perspective. And there's a man named Jesus. There's a man named Jesus who we celebrate. In Matthew chapter 4, verse, verses 12 and on. It says, now when he heard that John, this is Jesus, when, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea. Where, where's Capernaum? In the, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He did that so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah. Chapter 9, he says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Jesus, Jesus went to Galilee. He went to Zebulun. He went to Naphtali. So that what Isaiah said in, in Isaiah 9 could be fulfilled, could be made could be made whole. This Jesus is the light. Uh, on this land dwelling in deep darkness, light has dawned, light has shone, and it's, it's Jesus. It's, it's not a king, it's not another nation, it's not someone to overthrow the Assyrians, it's not someone to overthrow Rome, it's not someone to overthrow communism or, or whatever we want to throw in there. The light is Jesus. Jesus is the child. Jesus is the one who will have the government on his shoulders, God's government on his shoulders. He's the one who will rule forever. And this Jesus will save us, will save God's people, that is, from their sins. No one else can do this except Jesus how beautiful is God's revealed word, is God revealed in his word, that we can look back to Isaiah and see that Isaiah 9 is about Jesus, the Savior through whom God transforms gloom to glory. Jesus multiplies our joy. Jesus breaks our burdens. Jesus repurposes what is, what is terrible in our lives for his glory. Let's, let's, uh, let me finish this, this passage in Matthew 4. So verse 15 is quoting Isaiah 9, and, and verse 16 he quotes another part of Isaiah. He says, the, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is, is bringing God's kingdom to bear. So, so Jesus goes on from here, and he, he begins his ministry. Jack talked about the passage right before this, a couple months ago. This is the, the start of Jesus' ministry. And so he goes and he, he preaches, he spreads the, the truth that he is the light, and what is, what is his message? What does he say? He says, repent. Repent. And 
Judah needed to hear this message too. That's, that's, that's the point. Judah needed to repent. But Jesus is calling us to repent as well. Jesus' message was that there, there's no time to wait. There's, there's not time to tinker around and, and think about this light, this salvation from sin, this deliverance from gloom to glory. It's close. It's coming. Christmas helps us anticipate that. So are you, are you in? Are you in the kingdom? Have you repented? Has, has God transformed the gloom in your life to his glory? Has his light shone on you? How bad were the people of Israel and Judah afflicted by their sin? How, how bad was it for them? Were they just a little bit bad? Were they, were they just needing a little bit more time to get better? No, that Isaiah says of them, why will you be struck down? That's, that's the nation. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed or bound up or softened with oil. So the, the, the people of Judah, their, their problem with sin was, was all-inclusive, right? Their head, their heart, from the top of their head, to the bottom of their feet. It was more than just neck deep. It, it was everything. They were totally inflicted with the disease of their sin. It's true for us too, right? If, if God has not saved you, and, and even if he has, at one time, your sin consumed every part of who you are. Your whole head, your whole heart, all of your actions, every part terminally diseased by rebellion against God. So Judah needed light, not just to shine on the nation. They didn't need light to only shine on them so that they could be saved from Syria. They needed the light to shine on their very lives. They needed the light to penetrate their souls and transform all of them. So have you trusted Christ as your Savior? The, the child was given to us to save us from our sins. He, he came, and we're going to see how he came over the next number of weeks. He came and he, he lived a life that was perfect so that we could, could inherit, we could receive the gift of, of his salvation from our sins. You need light. And if you have trusted Christ, if you have been redeemed, if, you, if you've experienced the light, received the light, a question for you, for me, is, is what area of your life are you still clinging onto in rebellion? What, what area of your heart or your mind or how you live is 
is still in rebellion to God. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be fully glorious until he comes again. What has not been fully surrendered to the rule, to the dominion of Jesus Christ? His light reaches to your heart and he's determined to, to save every part of you. He's deter- determined to, uh, I like the term nook and cranny, right? He, he wants every part of your life. So, so where are you holding back? Where are, are you not repenting? Well, I want to end, end with this. What Jesus says himself in John chapter 8. John 8, 12, Jesus says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what a beautiful truth for us to cling to this Advent season. God transforms gloom to glory. And it's, it's not just things on the outside. God transforms us who are in, who are in gloom, who are in anguish to glory Be, because of Jesus, the light of the world who has shown on us. May he invade every part of our lives and our families in our church, so that we can be children of light, shining what he's, he's given us for the world to see. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for Jesus. <clears throat> Came as a child, bore the ransom for us that, that we could not pay. The, the repentance that we, we failed and has made us alive. You've made us alive through him. And so as we, as we go about our week, as we enter into this season of, of remembering who he is, I, I pray that you would help us, help us with, with fresh eyes in your word to see how you are making us new, how you are, are transforming our lives into the image of him. Help us follow you. Help us not shy away from from how you'd like to draw us to yourself, how you would like to invade our lives with your light and, and make us new. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.